Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, as well as a contributor at places like the Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political and cultural analysis, along with the best articles I've seen or read that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the newsletter sign-up link. Or you can use the links in the episode show notes, which you can get to at any time by clicking or touching on those. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading those reviews when they come in. So in this week's show, we're going to cover the two big stories of the week. The continuing protest in the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minnesota, which are now spreading both not just across the nation, we're now beginning to see similar protests pop up across the world, and as well as the ongoing fight against the coronavirus. Both these stories intertwine and interpact the other, so we'll get into some of that, as well as where each each story stands on its own. So that's what we're going to cover on today's show. There is a very real path that we could take towards both fixing police misconduct and addressing the concerns that the protesters have at these protesting events everywhere, whether here or across the world. But we're not taking that path. We're not going to end up taking any of these solutions that could fix the problem because our leaders are uniformly awful on this issue. This isn't about racism. This isn't about parties. This is about leadership or the lack of it. And I'm not talking about Donald Trump here. This does not impact him because Donald Trump is not leading the state of Minnesota. As I was going to record this late Sunday, the city leaders in Minneapolis have voted and decided to completely defund and disband their police force. So that's their solution to this. Now, that's not a decision being made by Donald Trump at all. That's not a decision also being made by any Republican because Minnesota is mostly a one-party rule when you're looking at both Minneapolis and as a state as a whole. So when you're saying up front that your police force is so bad that you have to disband it. That is a leadership problem. That is a political problem where the people who have been in charge for years have failed. So that's happening as these protests continue and are going global. Now, I keep mentioning the global part because you can just, if you go on Twitter or Instagram, you see videos of people protesting everywhere. One of the ones that I saw was one where people were spray painting and putting placards over a statue of Winston Churchill, which makes no sense at all. They were out there around that statue chanting that he was a racist. And one of the things that I pointed out about that video clip is that if you go back to 1932, which is before, before Hitler ever takes power, 
If you go back to 1932, you get an event where Winston Churchill is traveling abroad. He's working on one of his books about the Duke of Marlborough. It was about a four or five volume set. So he was in Germany doing some research for that. One of his friends was had was it a mutual acquaintance of Hitler and tried to arrange a meeting between the two. Now, remember, Hitler is not in power yet. Churchill hasn't started his long, many years assault on the British government for not being prepared enough for the next world war. So none of this has happened yet. And so Churchill's friends ask him, well, you know, I'll go see if I can. Do you have any questions you want me to ask him? Churchill said, sure. I want you to ask him why does, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the exact quote, but he asks you why does Hitler believe that a person should be treated on account of being born in a different race? Why should he be treated different just by the way he was born? So this is where Churchill's mind was, already knowing where Hitler was, at a point in time where very few people anywhere else, not just in England, but anywhere else in Europe as a whole was willing to admit where Hitler was, that he was a flagrant anti-Semite. And this was, and you know, Churchill, the British leader, is the one who helped defeat that great evil. And now people are out there spray painting on his statue calling him a racist when he literally defeated one of the worst and most horrible racists that the world has ever seen. So, this is where we are at this stage of the protest. We're at the part where things make very little sense. We could absolutely make headway. We could see great change and help push forwards a great change. But right now we're at the stage where people are just doing crazy things. It's one thing to protest. It's another thing if you're going to riot and loot. And those are obviously bad, especially if, if you're white. That If you're white and you're going down and burning things or looting or anything along those lines, all you're doing is endangering the peop- the black protesters who are there who are saying, we get mistreated by the police. And so if you're white and you're engaging and doing things that bring police presence there, you are endangering the people who are saying, we need better rules around policing. So there's a lot of bad things that are happening there. And now we hit the part where now we're at getting rid of police forces as a whole, which is what Minneapolis is doing. The city council, they came up with a veto-proof majority to disband the police department for their city. Now, overall to that, all I have to say is just good luck and Godspeed. I have no idea if their plan to create a new community-based system for enforcing the law will work at all because I know they don't have a plan right now. The plan right now is just to disband the entire police department. What they do on the Mac side of this, no one knows. But what this also means, very specifically for the rest of our political debate for the rest of the year, is this new hashtag campaign that they have on the left, hashtag defund the police, defund the police. That means exactly what they say it means. Say it means. When people on the left say, defund the police, they do not mean, you know, we need to reform the police departments, we need to institute new policies for police departments. They've literally helped defunded a police department for a major city in the United States, and it's being disbanded. 
there can be no other definition for what that hashtag campaign means because it is literally taking place. These are This is a, an actual policy that is being put into place in a major U.S. city. This is not some podec town in the middle of nowhere where they have two or three officers. I know there was a town near me where they had they were talking about having to get rid of their police department and going on a county and moving back to a county basis because they didn't have enough money to fund it. That's not what's happening here. This is a major metropolis that is disbanding an entire police department because of the actions of what happened and because of a long history of what they've done. They have tried reforming in Minneapolis. They've taken steps because they've had nonstop democratic rule there. This, it's not like they've not done anything, but they are now saying that it's so bad they have to get rid of the entire thing and toss it out of the door. But I do want to come back here to this point because a major U.S. city is disbanding its entire police force. The entire police force. That's unheard of, especially in modern, just in modern history here. You could go back and probably find something that happened in some other town, somewhere else, where you had a strike or something like that. But this is not that. This is a modern day, huge city that is getting rid of its police department. So they're going to try something new here that we've never seen in any other city. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. I laughed as a friend uh, sent me a comment saying that a community-based police program sounded to him like a massive homeowners association where everybody is spying on the other person and you have a bunch of, you know, I want to talk to your manager Karen's running the entire show. And that could be what it is. Who knows? I have no idea how they're going to create a police presence without a police force because you still have to enforce the law in these places. Somebody has to be the one to respond to these emergency situations. And a lot of these major cities, they depend pretty heavily on things like, like, you know, speeding tickets and things like that. This is not, this is something that they, they use and factor into their budgets. So they're going to try something new. I have no idea how it's going to go. No one really does have anything to go. I know it's common on the right for them to say, well, this just means that Minneapolis is going to end up in ruin because they don't have a police force. And that, while that is one possibility, that is not the only one. They could come up with something here. I'm willing to give them the room to, to see, you know, what happens here. But the, the, we don't know what they're going to put in place. All we have right now are vague generalities with the very specific conclusion that they're going to disband the police department. So, you know, I had one friend, another friend on the left who said, well, you know, we probably should have expected this because I've heard they've got a lot of big problems up there with their police department. And I just want to say, really? It's Minneapolis. Yes, I know they had this shooting with, with George Floyd and they've had many other instances that have happened here, but they... Minneapolis, Minnesota, is it's just far from what we would consider either the most racist or the most brutal police departments. I mean, you've got some heavy hitters out there, places like New York, Los Angeles, and more specifically Baltimore. Baltimore might have the most racist, actual racist police division in the entire country. And that's not that's not saying that's not going that far out of bounds because the Department of Justice launched 
an investigation into this higher city of Baltimore a few years back. And what they came back with was absolutely astonishing because you had you had entire divisions that were basically running mafia-like operations out of the police department where they would specifically go and shake down black men and then plant evidence on them and other things. It was absolutely awful what was happening in Baltimore. And I'm not even sure if they fixed all the problems that were with that. They, they, they were... Some of the they had some of the worst dirty cops that you could ever find in a police department in Baltimore, another major city. If you were talking about disbanding a police department, I could understand starting with a place like Baltimore. It doesn't make as much sense to start in a place like Minneapolis. But who knows? We'll see. I'm willing to give them room here to figure out a new system. I have my doubts that they'll come up with anything new just because of the sheer volume of number of cities that we have, for one, and two, the number of years in which every country on Earth has had to come up with some solution to this, and everyone has largely has largely decided on having a police force. You have to have a group of people who are willing to go out and enforce the law and just protect society. This was even, if you, you can go back to Plato's Republic, he had his guardian class that was meant to help protect the city or the polis from outside invaders. And they had a special education. They were treated differently. They were their own class. So even when you're talking in some of these theoretical environments with a philosopher, you, you always have some kind of enforcement mechanism for your laws and for your borders. And so I have no idea how they can come up with a solution to those exact situations without having an actual police force. So we'll see. Maybe it just ends up being they disband and fire everyone here. And then on the backside, they hire back a lot of them with new leadership, new rules. Who knows? I, I have no idea. But I'm willing to give them room to, hear, to think through this. I'm open to creative solutions. I just don't know what they would be in this situation. And I wrote two weeks ago... Out, you know, I wrote out my ideas in the newsletter about how to fix some of these policing problems, and none of them included getting rid of the whole thing. And it's worth noting here, this is the second point I want to hit here, if they do have issues, I mean systemic racism issues, where it's rife, the department is is contaminated from the top down, if they have these kinds of issues, and it's so bad that you have to tear it down from the bottom up, then you have to ask, who is responsible for running not just these departments, but making the political decisions on top of these kinds of police departments? Who is running both these cities and is head of these police departments and putting the leadership in place for these policemen? In Minneapolis, we know the answer to that, and it is Democrats. And this is not some just partisan hit point here that I'm trying to make. It's If this is a distinct problem where you have systemic racism, then you have to ask, who is to blame for that being put in place in the first place? Because we have federal laws. We've pushed federal you know, case law against Jim Crow. We have all these different catches to build this. And here we are. We're not in the South. We're in the American Midwest, in the state of Minneapolis, where we're talking about systemic racism. And only one party has run these states, specifically Minneapolis and Minnesota. The last time that Minneapolis had a Republican 
who re- who worked as mayor, was 1978. That was the last time. Well, I take that back. I'm sorry. From nights that was they had an independent who was printing there, in between there. So 78 Ford have been nothing but Democrats. An independent came before that, and then on December 31st, 1973, they had a Republican mayor. Now I'm highlighting that one day because this mayor worked as the Republican mayor of Minneapolis for one day on December 31st, 1973. That was the last time a Republican technically ran the city as mayor. Now, if you take that out, because working one day as mayor does not count, and a Democrat or an independent came in after that, if you go before 73, the next time that you will find a Republican in office as mayor of the city of Minneapolis, is 1961. That is nearly 60 years ago. If you want to do the math, 59 to be exact. So exactly one party has run this city for nearly 60 years. That's through all the civil rights protests, that's through all the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the Ferguson riots, everything. And there have been police shootings in in Minneapolis before this, all during that time. They've had one party running it. Here's how deeply blue Minnesota is. In 1984, Ronald Reagan won 49 states. Minnesota was the only one he lost. In 1984, he won all 49 states. That is unheard of in today's politics when every race is seemingly close. The last Republican president the state of Minnesota voted for was Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 50s. So it took the supreme allied commander of World War II for them to chip over enough votes to give it to him. And even then, they only gave him 55% of the vote. So that gives you an idea of how deeply blue and democratic this state is. They even have their own version of the Democratic Party that they that is the called the uh, the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. And and interestingly enough, it was founded, one of its founders was the mother of the current prosecutor in the case who's responsible for prosecuting the police officers involved in George Floyd's death. So that prosecutor, his mother, helped form the modern Democratic Party. So this is this is something where this one party has run everything up and down. The previous prosecutor who was responsible for this area that had the police officers involved in George Floyd's death, that was Amy Klobuchar, current U.S. Senator and vice presidential contender for Joe Biden. So you have Minnesotan Democrats up and down the National Party. So if you have these kinds of people in your party, you would think... At some point, if you're a progressive and you believe systemic racism is a problem, specifically if you're, you know, you hear a lot from a white progressive about how, how systemic racism is a problem and we need to call it out when we see it, you would think they would turn around and call it out in their own party. But that is not happening. That is not happening. If systemic racism is an issue, then who put it in place in Minneapolis, because there's been one party controlling everything here. Yes, there have been Republican governors of the state of Minnesota, but when it comes to mayors, there's only been one party. They've been calling all the shots here. They've been the ones who've been putting in these police chiefs. So this is their problem. So one of the reasons that I am hesitant to believe that they're going to be able to come up with a new policing method 
in Minneapolis is because they haven't come up with a new solution for policing in the past 60 years. They've had over half a century to figure out how to make policing better, how to bring in the community, and now it's gotten so bad they're having to disband the entire police department. That's pretty crazy because you can't say, I mean, you know, everything gets blamed on Donald Trump right now, but he's not running any of this. This is not his state. He didn't win it in 2016. He didn't put any of these people in place. Most of them have opposed him on the national level. So you cannot blame this on national or federal politics. This is a state's decision. This is, these are a state's laws. These are a city's laws. And if systemic racism is a thing, progressives need to look at themselves first to figure out why they keep putting these types of policies in place. On a related note, if you look at some of the literature on jury verdicts and how different races view jury, you view jury duty and handle situations where a crime is involved and a minority is the one who is accused and a police officer testifies. I've read a couple of studies out of places like Brooklyn, New York, when they get into these gentrified neighborhoods where, you know, rich, yuppie, white kids are moving in and taking over these areas. They're the type of people you see at these protests. When you stick them on jury duty, they overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, agree with whatever the police officer says. And so if you are black in these neighborhoods and you're accused, you are more likely to see a bad outcome if you have a jury with these types of white progressives on there listening to what happened. So, you know, these are the people who are saying systemic racism exists. And it's in their cities where this is happening most prominently. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not problems with the Republican Party. There are countless countless problems in the Republican Party when it comes to the issues of race, racial reconciliation, and other issues. But where they're tearing down a police department, that's not a Republican city. And so you can't sit here and say that this is a problem with our politics when it's one party involved here that made all the decisions. Now, what we're going to end on this is where all this could go. Every political movement has an action and a reaction. There's no idea, no idea or movement that goes unchecked or unresponded to. So what that means is that when you have these political moments here where you have a very strong movement, in this case it's a strong movement against police activity, it's towards ensuring racial equality. Some of these things are good. Some of these things are bad that they're pushing for. There's a lot of interplay here. But there, every political movement, every single one that our country has ever had, always eventually triggers a reactionary moment. You can see this immediately in the elections that we've had over the last 15 to 20 years. You had the excesses of the Clinton administration with everything that he did. While everyone agreed that Clinton had a great economy and they liked everything, they did not like all the personal aspects, and so they proceeded to put George W. Bush into office. The excesses of the George W. Bush administration with the various wars and the spending problems and the economy tanking helped lead to Barack Obama and his administration. And he, Barack Obama's administration led to Donald Trump. These things 
these movements, these moments in time, they always get a reaction from the other side. And it can be big, it can be small, but what I do know is that when you're looking at these moments here, where these these broad movements, they're never unified. There's always an opposing force. And the question is how far you push it back to cause a snapback in the opposite direction. A lot of people right now are comparing what we're experiencing right now to 1968, which was probably the worst year of the 60s. I don't think we're there yet, because if you go back and you look at the late 60s, early 70s, at just all the things that were happening in that period of time, we've kind of forgotten what happened in that period of time. We know the high, the, you know, the big news stories where Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy both get assassinated, but there were daily bombings, daily domestic terrorist bombings happening across the country, targeting, you know, Local institutions, national institutions, people, places, things. There were actual bombings where crazy leftist groups who came out of the 60s radicalized just began straight up bombing and trying to overthrow various institutions in cities and in the government. And eventually Americans looked around at this and said, we do not want this. We don't want this at all. And they proceeded in 68 to elect Richard Nixon. The other thing about the 68 election is that there was so much reaction against the civil rights movement that it produced George Wallace as a third-party candidate who was specifically running on white racial issues. And so that helped open up this path for Nixon to come in as a far more moderate candidate to kick out all the old excesses of the liberal 60s, of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and also get past Wallace. And he ran on this law and order campaign, which is why you're seeing Trump sort of repeat that, because he's trying to channel that same Nixonian energy where you're saying, I will respond to this. We can have a peaceful conversation on how to fix things, but we're not going to have a lawless environment. So that's why people are comparing this to 68, just because they can look at what Trump is doing and they see very easy parallels there to everything. And so that makes some amount of sense. I have my my doubts as to how accurate that is, but I can see how people get there. But even, even with that, a few weeks back I shared a link in my newsletter about a study on how protests and political violence affect elections. And if you want to, you can go back and read it. But the gist of it was this. If you controlled for other variables and looked for events where elections where there were a lot of peaceful protests going on, those events tended to benefit Democrats. Peaceful protests benefited Democratic candidates. Violent protests, on the other hand, benefited Republicans. And that is generally because when you get onto the Republican side, there is far more support for police forces and law and order in general. This sort of ordered liberty notion where, yes, you have a free, you have a free nation, but you also want to have a certain amount of police order to it where everybody knows what the rules are and those rules are enforced. And so when you get these violent protests, people tend to turn towards the party that supports those police officers. 
Now, we don't know if that's going to happen in this case just because there are so many wild cards heading into 2020. It's hard to nail down exactly what's going to be one of the controlling factors of what happens then. But, I mean, if you just think back, we were talking about impeachment in January. I still think there's some, you know, some lessons to be learned from impeachment. But the notion that impeachment is going to be one of the deciding factors in 2020 is an absolute joke. Right now, the two main issues are the coronavirus and these protests. And with all the time that we have between now and the election, we could easily see both of these surpassed by something else. So there's a long way to go. But going back to this reactionary standpoint, where you know peaceful benefits one side and violence helps the other, you can see how this plays out in policy and how the parties respond to this. So when you get into the mid-90s, the, you know, you had crime was at an all-time high across the board. Nixon did what he could, but it kept going up through the 70s, 80s, and finally peaked in the 90s. And that's when you get the 1994 crime bill, which was had bipartisan support all through Congress. And you also get the assault weapons ban, where the national government finally said, okay, we've got to do more to fix the crime problem because our cities are rife with it. That's when you also get the broken windows policies from Rudy Giuliani and some of these others where everyone sets out to clean up these cities to make them a better place to stay and live. So that was the ultimate reactionary moment of all the 60s. Everybody wanted more police presence. They wanted more strength from their mayors because they didn't want to live in a crime-ridden city because that's where it was. You can look at all the statistics. Crime was up everywhere. It affected all races. And people believed that it was bad, and they wanted a they wanted a response to it. So right now we live in very peaceful times. Crime is at all, especially violent crime. It's at all time lows. People are living in peace, and so that is helping them. That is helping in this moment to say, well, we don't need as much of a police presence. We're far more comfortable with us talking about reducing police force brutality and putting more checks on it because we're not in as much fear based on where we were in the 90s. So that's part of what's happening here. You have a far more peaceful country, so you can say, okay, we can maybe step it down on the policing. But if crime does return, especially in these cities like Minneapolis where they're getting rid of them, if crime returns and people feel threatened, they're going to do two things. You're going to see people move out of these cities because they don't want to feel unsafe and they're not going to wait for the politicians to pass a law to fix anything. And you're going to see eventually the political response where you see stricter laws come into place and stricter policing come in to fix it. Because people don't really know why you know, crime dropped. There are a ton of theories of why crime dropped in the 90s, but no one really has a, a firm idea of this is the number one factor and this is where everything draws out from there. And it's a complicated and nuanced situation where there are, it's a multi-factor deal. Some people say that the crime bill and the assault weapon bans helped. You can say the economy did it. There's just there's so many different ways you can look at it and say this is the reason that everything changed. So if we don't know exactly why it dropped, we don't know exactly why it could go up again, but it's certainly a thing that could happen. And we have not evolved to the point where we can live beyond law or beyond a police department. You still have to have somebody who is enforcing these laws and securing liberty and rights for everyone else. You have to have some form 
of government force that enforces these laws and punishes people when they do wrong. We have not gotten to the past where we are so high and, you know, this is 2020 and everything. We haven't gotten to some point where we're beyond all this. You still have to have it because there are bad actors in the world. So there's going to be a reaction against everything you're seeing now. It's just, when does that happen? I don't know. Does it come in this election year and benefit Trump? Maybe. It may not. And people may still feel at peace and feel like, you know, we can still give these these protesters their dues and go with Biden and expect him to respond to it, which, as an aside, is also a joke. There's nothing Biden could do here to fix anything. He may give better speeches than Trump on these types of issues, but the idea that he has any notion or any staffer with him that knows how to fix any of these problems is ludicrous. If Joe Biden had to fix this, he would have promoted the idea that fixed it for the last 45, 50 years. He hasn't done so. He voted for the 94 crime bill, which he got scorched over during the primary. So Biden doesn't know how to fix this. The only thing you're expecting from Biden is that he act, reacts to these situations better than Trump. If you want a solution, you're going to have to look somewhere other than Joe Biden. So this is going to get a reaction. 1968 gave us Nixon. The French Revolution led to Napoleon. And, you know, you can look at all of the presidential elections and how reactionaryism played into it. These events get a reaction somehow in some way. For everything that, that exists, there is a reaction. You can bet on that. So that's all I've got on that, and we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk about the latest coronavirus numbers. All right, we cannot forget about the coronavirus. I know that the news has pushed it aside. There are more important things seemingly to cover right now, but the threat from that virus still remains. The 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 remaining threat, just not from the virus, but also from how China is reacting to it and how that has changed global geopolitics with between the China Chinese and the United States, that is going to continue happening as well. So everything related to the story is relevant for now and for when we get past this period of protests. This is reshaping things actively on a week-to-week and month-by-month basis. So the top line numbers, as we do every week, there have been 20.2 million tests run. That means we've run 3.3 million tests in the past week. So we finally crossed the 3 million test marker and we cleared it pretty easily. There are 1.9 million positive cases overall and 104,000 deaths. The, the testing numbers finally spiked up above 500,000 for two out of the seven days this past week. We finally saw two days where we did 540,000 and 545,000 tests, respectively. The rest of them were below that, but still very high in the 475,000 range. So we are testing a lot more people, and also the number of pending tests, which had hovered between three to 5,000, has now fallen below 2,000 and is closer to around 1,500. So we've gotten not just more testing, but we're getting more efficient. The, you know, the more those pending tests drop, the more it says that we're getting faster and faster at the testing, and people aren't having to wait any amount of time to get the results of these tests. So that is the good news. The other good news is that the rate of deaths is falling, and we're finally under 1,000 deaths across the country a day. So that is also falling. So that is why it's taking longer to get over this 100,000 death 
marker here that, you know, just a f- couple of weeks ago, you had the New York Times putting every last single name of a person who had died in their newspaper as sort of a testament to the, the death toll of this. And now they're covering these protests as if none of that had ever happened at all. So like I said, we're below 1,000 deaths a day, and we're getting closer to around 750 deaths a day. So this is not the dramatic, almost exponential growth where you were seeing well over 2,000 people die every day. It looks like we hit a peak on that in the country closer to the ends of April and the beginning of May. So it's still taking a long time for these deaths to, you know, drift down to zero. And in fact, the the current models project that it's still going to be dropping well after the 1st of August. So this is going to be a slow drop throughout the rest of the summer if all trend lines stay where they are. Now, I want to make there's sort of a nuanced point I want to make here on where everything stands over overall. So make a very broad claim here and then sort of caveat as we walk through. There have been no major spikes anywhere related to the coronavirus. And here's how you can say that. A spike I would define as a major increase in, t- in the number of positive cases that causes you to think we need to reflatten the curve. There have been no spikes along those lines where you see that sharp incline of just a massive amount of new cases with no real explanation that suggests that we have a widespread outbreak. We're not seeing that. So there's no spikes in any major U.S. city or any small city that I'm aware of where you're saying, okay, there's a spike here. We need to flatten the curve in this exact place and get people to self-quarantine. That's not happening. What we have seen is that some the number of positive cases that we're seeing has started to edge up, which means... If you have more of these positive cases, it means you also have more active cases, not just total cases overall. Now, the positivity rate, where you're looking at the overall percentage of people who are testing positive for this and also getting tested, that is staying low and still sort of drifting down low. And we're not seeing either deaths or hospitalizations go up, although they're not, you know, hospitalizations aren't really dropping anymore either. Everything's just sort of stabilized along a flat line within sort of a, a, a defined range. So we're not seeing drops anymore, but we are seeing things just sort of flatten out where it's like, okay, this is where we're going to sit along this line overall. So so we're not seeing, there's no spikes, but there are these sort of edging up. So where you might see in, in Tennessee, for example, you might've gone from seeing two to 300 new cases a day to now you're closer to four or 500 on a given day. It's not enough to make you worry because we clearly have the hospital space and anything to handle that kind of capacity of people getting sick every day. It, but it is edging up the number of active cases when the, first major spike, there was a true spike in Tennessee that happened a few weeks back, but we knew why that took place. That was because people in the prison system finally got tested, and so that caused just a slew of positive tests to come out all at once. And so, you know, if you test two or 3,000 people in a prison system and half of them are, you know, confirmed to get it over a two-day period as you're factoring that in, you're going to have a massive spike in the number of people who are getting it. And that's largely what happened there. And then we saw in the recoveries, there were a couple of days where you saw five to 800 people say they all got recovered at once, which means we worked through that prison population over the course of two or three weeks. 
what we're seeing now is a similar amount of active cases where you're saying, you know, seven to nine, seven to 8,000 people as an active case, which is higher than where we were when we were working through the prison cases. So this means that there are more active cases than usual. Prior to this, I thought Tennessee, at least, would drop, drift back down to around the 5,000 active cases, which is pretty easy to work through if you, you're a state like Tennessee. And for the most part, seven to 8,000 is nothing that they have to worry about either because for the most part, the number of hospitalizations are staying pretty manageable. So we're not seeing a spike, but we are seeing an edge up. So that means there's going to be more active cases. That means there are more people who are capable of infecting others and capable of spreading it. You need the people who test positive to just stay indoors. You don't want them coming outside and infecting others. So that's sort of where we are on just the straight-up reopening front. Now, that means if that's where we are, that also means these protests are going to impact whatever happens here. Like I said last week, we're either going to see a large spike as a result of these po- um, a result of these protests, or we're going to see you know nothing happen at all, and people are going to just ignore the coronavirus entirely because they're going to say, well, nothing matters here. If there wasn't a spike after these protests, then I don't have to worry about anything at all. And in that timeline, if that happens, Donald Trump is absolutely going to claim victory and take many, many victory laps and say he saved America, and he'll probably have a point. He'll have a political point that he can make and the numbers to back that up. So that's kind of where we are on, you know, like a 30,000-foot view. Now, out of that, there are two very dumb kinds of people who are making virtually the same argument. It's just the inverse of each other. Dumb person... Number one says reopening will cause an increase in the number of COVID cases, but the protests will not. Now, they say that because they say racism is a public health crisis, and we need to allow people to go out and protest this because it's more important to defeat this public health crisis than it is to worry about the virus. And, you know, people can stay safe, they can mask up and everything. It's important to go out and protest this. And to that I say, sure, that may be important, but the virus doesn't care what you're protesting about. The virus doesn't care if you're talking about something very important, like the topic of racism. It will infect everyone. And as we've seen in the data, this virus has adversely impacted black Americans more than any other group in America. If you're black, this disease is more lethal than it is if you're any other race. And so if you are sick and you go out there and you infect people, you are more than likely you're impacting a community that cannot that cannot afford to get this virus compared to others. So that's dumb person number one, who thinks that you can protest and be fine, but you know, reopening is the bad thing. Dumb person number two says the opposite of this. They say protests will cause a spike, but reopening will not cause any problems because everyone is prepared and everything is fine. And this, this, I've seen this argument go across both Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, every, everywhere. I've seen both people on both sides of the political aisle making this argument, and they're wrong for the same reasons. If an uptick happens where we see a surge in positive cases in the next 7 to 10 days, I expect we'll start getting data from these protests coming in 
probably by the end of next week, that's when I would think you would start to see, you know, true positive cases start showing up in the numbers. Would be the end of next week. And if not that, the following week. If we start seeing a surge and an uptick happen, you know, especially if you're seeing a surge in hospitalizations, and then about a week or two later, those hospitalizations followed by death, then you can absolutely blame both events, both reopening and the protests, for causing the uptick in the number of cases that we had. You can actually do that because you're not going to be able to escape blaming both events for the virus making a comeback. There's just no way to tease out the effects and figure out, okay, these group of people got sick because of this. These group of people got sick because of this event. You're not going to be able to tease those out. And when you went back and you looked at South Korea, when they had one super spreader, one person who was responsible for like 80% of the cases at one point, this one person went to a buffet, then went to a church and went to a couple other places, but finally saying, oh, I'm sick. I shouldn't go out and do these things. I'll listen to the doctors. Well, that one person infected 80% of the of that country. You could very easily have one of those super spreaders hit one of these protests and impact everyone because you still have these asymptomatic cases where people who get it don't show symptoms, and so they keep going out. So if one of these couple of these super spreaders get loose in one of these cities, you could see a dramatic impact. And the same is true if they go to any of these businesses that are opening up and trying to be safe. If you have an asymptomatic super spreader, they can absolutely cause chaos. And we don't know what the result of that is going to be. So if you're preemptively, and, and I've seen people post, you know, pictures of tweets and other things from doctors and everything else saying, oh, you know, this isn't a big deal. I think my favorite is a friend who posted an ER, a set of ER picture, an ER doctor's opinion on this that was just idiotic because he was saying, oh, this is more important and you don't have to worry about this. You do have to worry about this. There's nothing... There's absolutely nothing that a protest changes in the calculation of how this virus spreads at all. Absolutely nothing. Now, it may be a noble cause to go out and protest and march and stand with your neighbor, but there is absolutely nothing that makes this pro- these protests different than from just generally reopening and allowing people to interact with each other. And if we're going to be even more blunt here, if you're going to say that people have the right and should go out and go to these protests, then I would like to sit you down and ask you one question. If that is the case, then why are you still against people going to churches, going into sports stadiums, and going into any other large gathering like a concert? Because you can still have people mic'd up, I mean, not mic'd up, but um, masked up, wearing protection and everything else at all these events. You can even do it in open-air places if you don't want people in a closed building. If you're saying protests are fine, you cannot then turn back around and say, well, it's still too dangerous for people to go to church, have a wedding, go to a funeral, or do any other number of things they do in a, with a group of people. You, you just cannot make that argument. It makes utterly no sense, and it just shows that you're using the virus to punish the political enemies that you don't like and to benefit those causes which you do. So that is the hypocrisy that people are seeing right now. They're seeing these experts, so-called experts, come out and say, well, these protests are fine, people should be allowed to go to that, but you still shouldn't do things like go to church or do anything else. Now, before, when everything was shut down, there was an argument to keep all these places closed. But if you're going to say that 10,000 people can go out on a city 
and march around for hours upon hours and then allow the police to allow, you know, do things like loot and other things, you can't turn around and say people can't do other things. You can't shut down these other events when you're allowing political protests because the argument against the church is the same argument against protest. The argument against a concert or an open air stadium for sports is also the argument against these protests. So ultimately what this means for right now, the here and the now, is that the lockdowns across the United States are over. It doesn't matter what a politician is saying. You could, you know, you could get in legal trouble, but the substantive weight for why you would ever have these lockdowns, is offici- they're officially over. Because if you can have these protests, then you cannot have people locked out of these other situations. You just can't do it. So that means the lockdowns are over, they're done, the protesters blew down the doors on this, on the slow reopening, all these talk about phases, those are all out the door now. The only thing that's stopping you now is the government saying you can't reopen, but the substantive reason for why you wouldn't be able to reopen is gone, and there's no reason to to expect it to come back. So the lockdowns are over, all because of individual action and these protests that has killed them, and... They're just flat out not coming back. You cannot expect people to seriously take seriously the argument that they should go back to a quarantine lifestyle when on when out of the other side of your mouth you're saying, oh yeah, but also go out here and protest with all these other people and risk getting infected and spreading it elsewhere. So we're here at the end of the first week of June, and for all practical intents and purposes, we have finished the official quarantine period for the coronavirus. I know uh, Andrew Cuomo is saying that, you know, New York is just now interesting phase one, but protests are also happening there. So if that's happening, it doesn't matter what he says. At this point, everything's open. Everything might as well be open because it does not matter at this point. So welcome to the new post-coronavirus world. If you're noticing people aren't wearing many masks anymore, you can look at these situations like the protests where people are watching them go out. I know I saw video, I saw video where people still on Twitter were mocking people in all these casinos in Las Vegas were saying, why are you wearing masks? Why are there people on that building? People are looking around and seeing these protests. That's why they're there in Las Vegas. That's why they're there celebrating. The genie is out of the bottle on this one and there's no going back. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or feel free to hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out for early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 